Welcome to Ominous Ones. I'm Tara. And I'm not Tara. So this is another kind of older case, but it's not from the 30s. It's from the 60s. And it starts on June 25th in 1968. Richard Robinson, Shirley Robinson, his wife, and their four kids, Gary, who was 16, Richie, who was 19, Susan, who was 7, and Randy, who was 12, were all vacationing right by Goodhart, Michigan, at their vacation cottage on Lake Michigan. The family's other house they lived in was in Lathrop Village near Detroit in Michigan. Richard's job and businesses were in advertising, and he was also a publisher for an art magazine. The vacation was going good until a shot rang out that day in June. Richard was the first victim. He was shot at five times with what was later found out was a twenty-two caliber rifle through a window he just happened to be standing by. After Richard was down, one of the kids was also shot through a window. With those two down, the killer decided to go into the house to shoot the rest of the family. They let themselves in through an unlocked door. After entering the cottage, they shot Shirley and the rest of the kids with a twenty-five caliber gun. Which, I'm like, is that weird for one killer to have two different guns? Yeah, I mean... I feel like I read a lot of cases, and that seems a little bit rare to me. They're definitely attempting to assassinate the whole family, so they came prepared. They were like, if I miss, I'm going to need extra an extra gun because I don't want to have to sit here and reload, is my assumption. Had a backup? Yeah. Well, after everyone was shot and killed, the killer also attacked some of the family with a hammer that they left at the scene by the bodies. So, made extra sure everybody was dead. After everyone was dead, the murderer then locked the doors, shut all the curtains, attempted to cover the bullet holes in the windows with cardboard, turned up the heat, and then left. Why did he turn up the heat? Also, I think it's... Never mind. Go on. I would assume that he turned up the heat to mess with decomp, but did they, was that common knowledge in 1968? Maybe. It seems like more of a newish thing. Also, I'm like, why did he cover up the bullet holes with cardboard? But maybe it's because he knew how long it was going to take to find everybody. As it took 27 days until the cottage was searched and the bodies of the family were found. So, even if the killer was trying to mess with decomp with the heat, I'm like, they were pretty decomposed after about a month. Yeah, no kidding. The cottage was searched after neighbors started complaining about a weird smell that was coming from there. So, a caretaker stopped by to make sure everything was okay. This was on July 22nd. So, no one missed the family? They didn't get reported missing? Apparently, vacationing for a month was normal. I don't know, because I didn't see it reported that anyone else reported them missing. Just that the house was smelling. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. Very strange. He got there, and the caretaker, and looked around and knocked, but no one answered. So he tried the doors, finding all of them locked. He decided to break into the cottage, and after prying a door open, he made the gruesome discovery, finding Shirley first. He ran out and called the cops. Shirley was left in a position that made the killing seem sexually motivated, but they didn't find evidence that 
It was sexual. She's just posed like that. What is up with all these killers in the last few that we've done that are like, they go in through these unlocked doors and then before they leave they're like, oh, I better lock up. I don't know. Strange. Not intentional on my part either. They didn't find much evidence to find the killer, but they did find one set of bloody shoe prints around, so they figured that the murders were likely carried out by just one person. Like I said, the bodies had been left for 27 days, so they were in a bad state of decomposition. It was decided that they wouldn't do the autopsies in the morgue, so they were taken to the Emmett County Fairgrounds. I read that they did this because of how strong the smell of death was and how messy it all was, but I'm like, aren't morgues ready for all of that well i mean especially in the middle of summer with the heat turned up because he turned the heat up before he left but also so you're like you know what let's go to the fairgrounds let's ruin everybody's summer plans and cancel the fair so that we can well i don't think they did it in the middle of the fair they weren't like shut all the rides down we're doing this <laughs> in the open i'm like there must have been some type of a building that they were able to do it there but Weird, they're like, mm, we don't want to make a mess in the morgue. This is too messy for my morgue. Not let's, sure. Let's take this to the fair. Make it a family affair. Literally. Not sure why they did that, but after the autopsies, the family was buried. In November of 1968, about four months later, the bodies were actually exhumed to see if they could find any more evidence since they were getting absolutely nowhere trying to find the killer. Which, I'm like, after four months? And they were already severely decomposed. It's a big deal to dig up bodies. After four months, like, we're getting yeah, nowhere. Bring them back up. Ed Gein was fine. He could do it in a night by himself. <laughs> well, He's the last person should, to ask. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Maybe they should have asked him for help. He would have been way too eager. <laughs> he would have been more than willing. Digs up the whole graveyard. He's like, absolutely, I'll be there right now. On my way, got my shovel. With not much evidence, the cops questioned everyone close to the family and people that they knew. Neighbors were talked to, and a guy and a teenager who were local tree trimmers were talked to since they had been trimming trees for the Robinsons on June 25th, and they were thought to be the last people to see the family alive. All this questioning went nowhere, and supposedly the list of people that they questioned was two pages long. Still got nowhere. But remember, the family wasn't from there, so I feel like they could talk to everybody in town, but if they weren't from there, there's vacation there, how much are those people going to know about them? Yeah, very true. So they started questioning people back by where they lived when they weren't at their vacation house. And one person stood out from the rest since he had no alibi and no one could account for him for around 12 hours the day of the murders. This guy's name was Joseph R. Scalero III. He was 30 years old and had worked for Richard as his assistant starting in 1965. While being questioned, Joseph told the cops that the last he heard from Richard was on June 25th when they were talking about some company checks. After investigating Joseph, they found out that about $60,000 was missing from Richard's two businesses that Joseph had been in charge of right before the murders. They also saw that Joseph had given himself a substantial raise for being Richard's assistant, and he was also just giving other random people raises. 
God, could you imagine? That would be amazing. Like, you know what? I deserve a raise. I'm such a good assistant. You get a raise. You get a raise. Everyone gets raises. They assumed all this was done without Richard knowing about it or giving it his okay. Not only did it appear that Joseph was stealing money from Richard, they also found some questionable gun records. Joseph owned both a 22 caliber rifle and a 25 caliber gun, but after the cops went to the gun range he'd recently been shooting at, they also found that casings he had left there matched the casings found at the crime scene. When questioned on where the guns were, Joseph told them he had given the 22 caliber rifle away, but when they asked everyone around him about it, one of his neighbors said that he had seen the rifle at Joseph's house around the time of the murders. He also said that he had given away the 25 caliber gun, but then he showed the cops what turned out to be a different 25 caliber gun, and they found that he had bought both 25s on the same day. They thought, so he, when they, if he was ever questioned, he'd be like, oh no, this is a 25 I bought, and then shot him with the other one. They also matched the ammo to him because apparently the bullets were from a limited set and had only been sold for a specific couple of weeks in January and February, the year of the murders. That is the wrong bullets to use. They searched all the sales records, and guess who bought some of the unique bullets on February 2nd, 1968? The amazing assistant. Yep. He sucks at this. Which I'm like, it's good, because that's how people get caught, is being stupid, but, like, that's pretty far. On December 17th, 1969, so the next year, the cops that had been doing all this investigating took all this evidence to the prosecution to see if they could go arrest Joseph. They also had evidence that Joseph was given and failed two polygraph tests. Unbelievably, the prosecution told the cops, no, they weren't allowed to go arrest him and that they weren't going to go after him because nobody could find the two guns that had been used and they didn't find any fingerprints or like solid evidence. It was just circumstantial. I mean, that's pretty... Deep circumstances, though. Matching the casings, the receipts for the weird bullets, the $60,000 I think he stole. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. Yeah, it's not like just a little bit of things. It was rumored that they didn't prosecute because the county didn't want to pay for the trial, and they all assumed it would be really expensive, and apparently the county didn't even want to pay for the family to have autopsies, which was just a rumor, but would explain why the autopsies were done at the fairgrounds and not in the real morgue. They were like, just do like kind of a basic autopsy do and like, get this done with at the fair. Get it over with at the fair. Still. We'll have the fair maintained while you guys do this so we can still make some money too. <laughs> I mean, gotta do what you gotta do, I guess. How broke is this town? It's gotta be pretty bad God. at that point. The case then went cold for four years. This is when a new prosecutor gets involved. His name is L. Brooks Patterson. After going over all of the evidence, Patterson thought that they could get Joseph and was ready to have him arrested. But Joseph learned that they were about to come after him for the murders, so he unalived himself on March 8, 1973, leaving behind a note. I couldn't find the whole note, but some of the pieces were... Quote, I am a liar, a cheat, a phony, unquote. 
And on the same paper, but addressed to his mom, it said, quote, I had nothing to do with the Robisons. I'm a liar, but not a murderer. I'm sick and scared. God and everyone, please forgive me, unquote. Included in this note was also a list of people he had ripped off during business deals. So he was like, see, these are the people I ripped off and I do steal from people, but I don't murder them. He's like, I am a piece of shit, but not that much. Pretty much. The case went into Michigan's inactive file because it was technically never solved. In 2018, on the 50th anniversary of the murders, some retired detectives and other people got together with a local historian to start talking about the murders again and to get rid of some of the rumors that were still around even after 50 years. A retired history teacher named Wiles, who was involved, said, quote, There are a lot of rural myths up there. People's reputations have been besmirched. We're just trying to get the truth out, unquote. The talks or forums got so big that there was standing room only at some of them, so they definitely got the attention they were after. And the speakers at these presentations said that it was just rumors that bad police work was why it was never solved, and they believe the person who committed the killings had unarmed <coughs> himself in 1973, and that's why there was never any resolution. They also got it out there that it wasn't a local to the area who did it like the summer tree trimmers or the caretaker of the cottage. Apparently, those rumors had been going around all those years, and so those people were like getting a lot of flack for it, but they believe that it was Joseph who actually committed the murders. I agree. Me too. Like, there was... It was circumstantial, but there was just too much of it. Yeah, especially with, like, the bullets or whatever, like, the special bullets that were purchased. Like, how how many were even sold back then? You know what I mean? Like, and you can only purchase them during that month, and he ended up having some, and he had the exact calibers of firearms that were used and he unalived himself when they when he found out they were coming after him like in the casings from the shooting range he was at matched the murders yeah like yeah it was just too much those are pretty good circumstances in my book that's crazy they didn't go for him with the old prosecutor yeah well that was the story of the good heart murders so thanks for listening and we'll talk to you guys next time bye